When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. This is the Project Public Podcast, presented by Onyx Hunt. I'm your host, Nick Larson. On this episode of the show, we talk New Jersey upland hunting with Joel Pancala of Griffin and Howe. Welcome to the show for episode number 86. Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Use the promo code PUP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. Earlier this month, Onyx just announced a new partnership with Weather Underground, which, if you didn't know, Onyx has weather data right in their app, and they've now partnered with Weather Underground, which has increased the number of weather stations the app can pull data from 
tenfold. Another value add from Onyx trying to make it your one-stop shop when you're mapping, navigating, planning, strategizing your hunt in the field or at home. Onyx Hunt is with you all the time. Check it out, onyxmaps.com. The Project Dublin Podcast is also brought to you by our friends at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. You haven't experienced Grouse Camp until you've experienced it at Pine Ridge. Find out more about the Pine Ridge Grouse Camp experience by visiting pineridgegrousecamp.com. And by Dr. Collars. For over 30 years, Dr. has collaborated with industry professionals to create class-leading tools for e-collar training, GPS tracking, and more to support bird dog owners in developing top-notch dogs. And they make really great collars. Check them out at dogtra.com. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. Out in the field, how you've prepared determines how you'll perform. With balanced fat and protein to support peak condition in your bird dog, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food enhances strength, energy, and endurance. So when that tailgate finally drops, you and your dogs are ready for anything. Strong, focused, ready for anything. That is a Yukonuba dog. And by Gumleaf USA, high-quality, handcrafted, premium rubber boots that will stand the test of time. If you didn't have a pair of Gumleaf boots this year, but you can always have one next year, head over to GumleafUSA.com and use the promo code PUP10 to save 10% from Gumleaf USA. And by Gordian Sons Outfitters, when your boots have the proper tread, you never notice how slippery it is. When your hunting jacket features the right liner, your body temperature won't enter your mind. When your shooting vest allows total freedom of movement, you won't think twice about swinging through that quail at gordian sons they want you to focus solely on the hunt not the performance of your gear that's why the gordy family has personally curated the best in class gear from around the globe for their store find out more about the gear the guides the expertise everything they have to offer by visiting gordiansons.com and by dakota 283 kennels kennels built to last a lifetime one piece rotomold design frame steel door everything you and your dog need in a kennel for a safe and successful hunting trip find out more about them and get yours today by visiting dakota 283 All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway is Mike O from right here in Minnesota. Mike nominated his friend Audie last week to win the podcast giveaway for taking Mike out hunting this year. Mike is an adult onset hunter. He's just got into upland bird hunting. He had a great season and he's been enjoying the podcast and we appreciate his feedback. So Mike is this week's winner of the giveaway. Anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave us a rating, leave us a review in the podcast app, subscribe to the podcast post, share the podcast, send us some feedback or guest suggestion we'd like to hear from our listeners you can email me at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com one quick announcement public grouse we talked about it last week get your tickets today via backcountry hunters and anglers public grouse is hopefully coming to a city near you we can't be everywhere but we will be in at least 20 locations across the country head over to backcountryhuntersandanglers.com check out public grouse and get your tickets today all right we're jumping into today's interview with marketing manager at griffin and how joel pencala joel Joel has written for Project Upland Magazine. He was featured in a recent Project Upland film, Legacy. He works as marketing manager for Griffin and Howe, buying, selling, and shooting a lot of different shotguns. He has a lot to offer. We talk New Jersey upland hunting. We later get into traveling wing shooting, and we round it out with a little bit of shotgun conversation. I hope you enjoy this one, and I'd like to wish everybody listening a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Project Upland podcast. Marketing Manager at Griffin and Howe, Joel Pincala. Hi, Joel. Here we go. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast. How are you, man? Uh, Good, good. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. Thank you for joining us. And I'm going to do a little last second show preparation here. Joel, how do you pronounce your last name? 
Pencala. Pencala. Now I know, and all the listeners of the Project Up and Podcast know. So, pro podcasting tip: always do that before you hit record. But we're we're doing it on the fly today, so no worries. All good. All right, man. It is December nineteenth. Appreciate you taking some time to chat with us when. The world kind of seems to slow down a little bit. You know, we're, we're looking ahead at, at holidays coming up next week. And I know for me, I've been very busy at work because obviously I have a got a busy fall traveling and stuff. And now I'm kind of playing catch up and doing a lot of that kind of stuff. How have things been going for you? You've been out in the woods. Have you been in the field? You've been working like a dog so you can slow down for the holidays. What have you been up to? Well, quite a bit of all those things, actually. <laughs> so uh, it's been a busy fall. I have done a good amount of local bird hunting out with the setters and chasing the woodcock around in New Jersey. Um, I was actually uh, out in Alaska for a couple of weeks. A good friend of mine pulled a doll sheep tag, so I took some time off to uh, get up there and spend some time in the mountains, which was an experience to, to be sure. And uh, at this point, right before the holidays for us, we're just getting ready for all of our shows. So we're going to roll into show season in January, February, and March, and we'll be out there at We'll be in Dallas for Safari Club and down at Seawee. We're going to actually be at the uh, National Wild Turkey Show down in Nashville this year and also out to the Easter Sheep Show. So we're trying to get all our ducks in a row and make sure that we're prepared for our, for us. This is our big show season. So it's, uh, you know, it slows down a little bit in terms of the repair side of things, but uh, for sure we're, we're busy behind the scenes. So big trip to Alaska, not a trip that doesn't sound like you had the opportunity to carry a shotgun. Did you see any ptarmigan or any birds? Well, we did. Um, being a constant bird hunter, uh, I couldn't go into the woods without a shotgun. So <laughs> we actually did get the opportunity to uh, to shoot some ptarmigan. All right. Uh, when we were up there, and um, I added one to the to the life list. So that's a that was a kind of a requirement, I suppose, uh, for for going to the bush in Alaska. You know, um, I like to check birds off my you know, uh, North American Grand Slam whenever I have the opportunity. And I don't get many opportunities to go to Alaska. So a uh, shotgun was on my backpack. And um, so we had a full complement, actually. We had a, a high-power rifle for sheep. We had 22 for small game and a shotgun for, for birds. So we were prepared for whatever was going to come our way. And uh, we actually did spend a little bit of time fishing as well and caught some grayling. And, um, yeah, it was a full Alaska experience up there. Um, I can't I can't speak highly highly enough about uh, if you ever have the opportunity to go to Alaska, it's amazing. Yeah, that's pretty wild. That's been, I went there when I was a senior in high school. I went on a fishing trip. I was there in June and I was in Sitka. So way down, really way down the coast. But mm-hmm. so I got, I got kind of a little slice of it, but I have not been really on the mainland or anything like that and experienced what you had. It sounds interesting. That's, that's cool that you did get to put a little ptarmigan in the bag for, for some camp meat, I suppose. Yeah, we uh, we ate ptarmigan pretty well, and uh, some some fish as well to keep us going when we were in the backcountry. So it was definitely a, a once in a lifetime experience. So you mentioned travel. For, oh, go ahead. So for I was gonna say for a guy who primarily chases upland birds, uh, a big game hunt was something completely out of my wheelhouse, but certainly a welcome change. Well, that's interesting because yeah. I didn't think to ask you that question, but I certainly know you as an upland bird hunter because we met under those pretenses at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp a couple of falls ago. But a logical question would have been, do you do much big game hunting? Because I remember remember talking to you about some of your customers and the outfitting, really the outfitting that you guys do at Griffin and Howe, which we can touch on a little bit. But it sounds like not a whole lot of big game hunting. 
Yeah, so I um, I grew up obviously as a as a bird hunter in in, in New Jersey. We really don't have a, a major complement of big game. We've got big three. You know, we're we're talking for us, it's white-tailed deer, black bears, and wild turkeys is quote unquote our big game. So uh, it's kind of odd for an East Coast boy for his first. <laughs> first big game hunt to be doll sheep in Alaska. But, <laughs> uh, you know, my, one of my sayings is if you're going to do something, you might as well go big. And yeah, um, you went big. So that was, <laughs> that was officially my first big game hunt that I actually backpacked in for and all the rest. So, okay. um, I had, you know, I, I'm familiar with backpacking have done backpacking trips and actually I had done a, uh, uh the same guy, Chris, that I went to Alaska with, we went to Nevada and chased snowcock together several years ago. So we had done a backcountry backpacking hunting trip already. Okay. Um, but again, under slightly different uh, context. Yeah, you guys have some pretty big black bears there in New Jersey. We do. Yeah, we have a <laughs> very healthy population of black bears. Uh, quite a few. Now that's we're just like we're way off track here, but that's okay. That's that's <laughs> ringing a bell for me. There was something in the news like this fall or over the summer about New Jersey black bear hunting. Did they cancel hunting or did they want to or what was going on there? Do you, oh, do you recall boy. that? So, <laughs> uh, so it actually it does tie in, and I'll kind of uh, I'll kind of bring it back around. Perfect. Um, you be the host and you segue us, Joel. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll do the. I'll try to do the best segue I can right here. So, black bears in New Jersey uh, for a long time were a game species, and they almost completely eradicated them from the state. And then at one point in time, they became uh, what we call a non-game species here, uh, along with uh, the morning dove. So uh, it kind of ties it together. Uh, both black bears and morning doves are not mandated by the Fish and Game Council. So because they're non-game species, the governor and the politics of the state actually uh, the governance actually controls the seasons on them, which is why the governor can, um, which is what he did. He he canceled uh, in the past. The black bear black bear hunt has been canceled um, because of basically politics. Uh, but our current governor restricted hunting to private ground and basically any public held ground owned by the state of New Jersey was closed. Okay. So all of our all of our wildlife management areas, all of our state parks were closed, but the federal grounds and the private grounds were still open to bear hunt. So um it's kind of a controversial issue here. We have more than enough bears to go around. They um we certainly don't put a dent in the population. They extend the season every year because they never meet their quota. So the state has a quota set for a harvest number and they never actually meet it. So they always end up extending the season. But the reason this all ties in is because of the recent season closure uh, this year, and I'm, it made news quite a bit, and I uh, wrote about it a little bit, was the, the article that I, I wrote about New Jersey grouse hunting, and they, there was an emergency closure of the season, of the of the rough grouse season. And um, the, the toughest part about that is that, again, now that, that rough grouse is going to fall kind of into that uh, group of species like doves and bears that um it's not just going to be oh the grass are back and we can reopen the season there's going to be a lot more red tape and paperwork to go through to get them back basically back on and, and back on as a species that we can hunt gotcha and that is an excellent segue we'd be remiss if we did not talk about that development in new jersey rough grouse hunting and the cancellation and i actually was pretty well aware of that just in some communication with the rough grouse society and i saw your article on the blog so that would be that's a good topic of conversation that Brings to mind a couple of questions now. Are there, with your knowledge of New Jersey hunting and politics and the landscape, you know, however deep it goes, are there concerns about when the rough grouse or any wildlife species goes into that non-game category, 
Is there concern over loss of funding for conservation and habitat? I mean, I don't know how all the funding mechanisms or anything work, but does it become a slippery slope? That's where my mind is going, but I'm not sure if you can comment on that at all. It's a difficult thing. I mean, uh, densely populated state, New Jersey is extremely densely populated, right. and we have over the course of time slipped into a place where we are dealing more with human wildlife interaction and have a lot more socio-political things at play that affect wildlife much more so than funding or or you know the politics behind it so essentially what that means is that it, it's really a matter of the politics and the parties that are at play for habitat for wildlife for conservation than it is for anything else so we certainly have monies in the state although you know it, it Again, most people think of New Jersey as uh, the Parkway and the, sh the Jersey Shore. Uh, there's quite a bit of the state, both north and south, that's open space. And we have a lot of designated open space in the state that could be managed for wildlife. But again, the, the primary reasons that, at least from my perspective, that I see that, that they're not more actively managed is this idea that uh, the wild spaces either aren't important or that they don't deserve the attention that they, that they do. And uh, that's part of why we've had the decline that we have in early successional habitat and as a result, decline in grouse and woodcock and other species that utilize that cover, where in contrast, a lot of the species that benefit from older growth forest or uh, kind of the steady march of, of time and of, of human um, influence, you know, our, our deer, our, our bear, our turkeys are doing just fine. Uh, because they can flourish in that kind of environment where you have larger timber and interspersed houses, uh, you know, they're doing just fine. Right. Yep. Two species that are very well adapted to kind of that, you know, urban, urban woodland type environment. While we're yep. on the topic of New Jersey, I mean, I will definitely, I will link to your, the article that you wrote and is, had been recently published on the Rough Grouse Society blog. Another piece of writing that you did was in the, I believe it was the fall issue of Project Upland Magazine. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, and that kind of talked about your history and upbringing as a wing shooter. Really enjoyed that article. And don't tell AJ, but I just read that this morning. I was, I'm way behind on my reading. <laughs> I, I got a stack of magazines. I'm sure he'll listen to this at some point and hopefully he doesn't get too mad at me. But it was an excellent article and it was almost coincidence that I read it this morning you know, I knew that we had the interview set up tonight, but I didn't read that article this morning on purpose. I just happened to be getting through my stack of magazines. Excellent article. And, you know, that painted kind of a neat picture for me as somebody that I'm not very familiar with New Jersey, the East Coast. I've never hunted out there. I've spent limited time out there. And, and I would have been that person to just sort of paint a broad stroke and think, oh, well, New Jersey's got to be just uh, one big city, you know. That's that's what it, that's what the East Coast is, right? You know, I just haven't spent enough time out there to to see those open spaces and the public lands that you guys have access to. So the the article that you did on Rough Grouse Society and the article that you wrote in the Project Upland Magazine painted actually a a cool picture of an opportunity that you had to grow up a wing shooter in New Jersey. Now I know that things are definitely not as rosy as they once were. And I feel like you kind of laid that out nicely. Could you talk a little bit without diving too deep into it? Could you talk a little bit about sort of that story arc of wing shooting and upland hunting in New Jersey that you kind of know, you know, the story from your dad and then now what you've seen in the past, you know, 30 years or so. Yes. Um, so my dad's a, I worked as a biologist for the state for a long time and I, you know, he went to actually Rutgers University as a biologist and came out of the, came out of college and, and worked in the state and lived 
in the southern part of the state, but we're talking back in the 70s when, you know, there was still a lot of transitional cover. And, and honestly, the, the hunting back then was, you know, everybody talks about the good old days. And, you know, when I talked to him, he talked about living down there and the opportunities that there were for a, a, somebody who was a bird hunter. Um, at one point in time, there were four different species of wild game bird in the state. We had bobwhite quail, we had wild pheasants, uh, rough grouse, and, and woodcock. And the idea that you could hunt four different wild species of game in the state of New Jersey all in one day um, for, for the apple hunter, that was a pretty romantic vision of the past. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so he brought that with him when he moved to the northern part of the state. And that's where I grew up. I grew up in uh, northwest New Jersey um, in Sussex County. And it just so happens that the portion, my portion of the state borders the Delaware River. And again, back in the 70s, there was a movement to uh, the government actually wanted to dam the Delaware River and create a large reservoir to serve as a water source for New York City. Fast forward a few years and a few protests later, uh, they had taken over all the property and then essentially the project got stopped. So there was enough public outcry that they stopped this uh, Tox Island Dam project and were stuck with this huge track property that they couldn't give back. They, they were now owners of it. It actually became the Delaware Water Gap uh, National Recreation Area. So that was all, essentially it was all farms. And in my youth, so uh, I'm 36, Five, almost 36 now but in my youth when i started hunting at 10 12 14 years of, of age much of that ground was still in its successional progression so i got to grow up hunting grouse and woodcock in a part of the state that was I- improper for its time it didn't really fit um it was an unreal kind of vision of what proper wildlife management could be sure. by having all this early successional habitat and i was able to actually be there and in what I would consider my, you know, that was the golden days. As a kid, I can remember hunting with my father, you know, stealing moments here or there, being able to drive 20 minutes to a cover, hunt for a little while, and kill grouse and woodcock over our dogs. And we had, you know, a variety of dogs. We, uh, you know, setters, um, Britneys uh, over the years. And I just, again, as, as a young child, it ingrained in me that this was just something that we could do. We could run out after work. We could run out after school. We were there every Saturday. And um, and chase the chase the birds that we loved, and not the least of which, which aided that was the fact that New Jersey still has, and to this day, still has a pretty good uh, put and take pheasant stocking program. So the state of New Jersey, right now, we're in the uh, we purchase pheasants from Pennsylvania, from the state of Pennsylvania, not from the state itself, but from a private party there. And New Jersey still stocks, uh, from my understanding, thirty five to forty five thousand pheasants on the wildlife management areas in the state. So. Coming from a state that most people view as kind of, like I said, one big city, there was a lot of opportunities for a young man who, you know, got introduced to it at a young age and um, grew up chasing those birds around. It was it was great. We could transition right from the migration of the woodcock in October into pheasant stocking in November, December, and they ran it right through to New Year's. So for several months of the year, uh, my focus was almost laser on just being out in the woods and, and chasing birds around. That's very cool and unique, obviously, that you got to experience, I guess you could call it a man-made, you know, golden years in in rough grouse hunting in New Jersey because of that project. And that project, you know, it was a significant event that you knew about. But I, th- I think it's interesting that you actually have the perspective and you can recognize that that 
bubble in grouse population. That's kind of what I was getting at, like sort of an artificial bubble in the population because of, because of macro changes on the landscape. You recognize that, you know, I think that's kind of uncommon. I think a lot of people have maybe a fuzzy memory in their head of, of when the best hunting was, but to actually acknowledge and pay attention to what factors were at play. And was that, was that bubble was it natural or was it artificial and what were the things influencing? I just think that's kind of interesting to look at no matter what population yeah. or species you're looking at. Well, I, I think the other thing that it really serves, at, at least from my point of view, it's a very clarifying and crystallizing vision of what management can actually achieve. For right. Sure. So we had a lot of open space and the government made a, made a big move. And perhaps that move, you know, from a lot of viewpoints, that move was looked down upon and eventually struck down by the people. We said, look, we don't want to do this. Uh, the Delaware River is one of the last free-flowing rivers on the East Coast, if, if not the last. That's, that's an undammed river on the East Coast. People spoke out about it. And it was a terrible time. People got evicted and kicked out of their houses. And it was, I mean, it was very, it was very tumultuous in the time. But the end result of that was this great experiment, right? So we had this experiment to see what wildlife management could produce. So intensively for many years, you had this beautiful change of habitat and the structure of the environment changed. And with it came uh, this wonderful opportunity. So as much bad as there was, there's equal good. And again, from my point of view, I look at it, look at it as an example of what we can do given the opportunity. So there's no reason why grouse can't be back in the state of New Jersey. Given the opportunity, we can make the habitat to make it so. Uh, it's the public, at least from my point of view, it's the public perception and the voices to speak out about it, to tell people, you know, why it's good to actually have some uh, changes in habitat, some early successional habitat, why it's good to cut down some trees. And, um, you know, that's, to me at least, that's why New Jersey's gone the way it has, is that um, there's been a lack of awareness and lack of support for active wildlife management. Yeah, that's phenomenal perspective. That's a that's a cool way to look at it. And that's why I wanted to go next. I think people can kind of gather from picking up, they're picking it up from listening to the conversation, but fast forward to, let's fast forward to the fall of 2018 when you still had a rough grouse season. That area was an area that you had hunted. I don't know, do you still live in that area now or are you not near there? Yeah, no, I, I still uh, I actually moved closer. <laughs> okay. I grew up I grew up about 25 minutes away from where I live now, and I uh, purchased a property that actually touches the same area I'm talking about, the, the National Recreation Area. My property actually borders it, so uh, I'm one of the lucky few that can walk out my back door and go hunting. That's very cool. That's awesome. That's uh, that's actually a, a, a dream slash goal of mine someday. I want to be able to do that, so that's very cool. But, you know, even aside from that particular place, but you saw an area move through an early successional stage and you had great hunting. Now, again, people are gathering from the story that essentially that early successional forest grew, matured, aged as people that most people that pursue rough grouse and woodcock, they're very familiar with sort of the age and life cycle of a forest, but that aged out and you're just not seeing the timber harvest, the active forest management out there today to maintain that. The grouse population has dwindled to a point where the season is now canceled. But what did what did a 2018 rough grouse hunt in New Jersey look like? Were you flushing five birds a day, ten birds a day, one bird a day? What did it look like? Oh, uh, one bird a day would have been a joyous occasion. Okay. I mean, I, I say that in, in terms of 
the level of grouse in the state, there were very few of us that actually actively pursued them uh, last year. And I did, I did harvest grouse in the state of New Jersey last year. And my last hunt was one for the books because I've hunted many days and not flushed a single grouse. And um, the last hunt that I had of the last of the season was open. It was day, you know, several days after the, it was actually a week, I think after the, uh, small game season open, but the pheasant season was open and um, it was one of the last days of the grouse season, but we actually had an early snow and I took one of my setters out. I took my female setter out. She tends to work a little closer and I actually ran her with no bell that day, which I normally run with a bell and I, I went no bell that day because I wanted to be as quiet as possible and we worked a cover that I had found only a few years before and walked through a good long ways, probably at least an hour of walking and looped through on the backside of a pond and was coming up through the thickest of the thickest stuff that there possibly was. And there's some white pines there. And again, snow on the ground and a grouse, the dog gets a little bit birdie and a grouse flushes out of some, uh, some bittersweet vines tangled in a cedar tree. And the bird was up in the tree and it flushed out and butt hooked around out too far ahead of me initially for a shot, but for whatever reason, Bank to the left, and I can still see it in my mind. I missed the easy shot with the first barrel uh-huh. uh, on my side-by-side and took a long poke through white pine tree with the second barrel. And I just saw that. I mean, if you're a grouse hunter, you know it. You see that flutter slash drop of a bird. Yep. And my heart leapt. I mean, I, I hadn't killed a bird in New Jersey in years. And I ran, literally ran over to find the bird. And I had... Broken the, you know, broken the right wing. I picture in my mind. I mean, I could see it like it was right now. I, I broke the outside of the right wing and I picked up the bird and um, took the gun down, broke the gun down, set it on the ground, put the bird down, knelt down on the ground and made a phone call with my father. I mean, it was the first thing I did. Wow. And uh, I said, you'll never believe what just happened. You know, because I, I had, you know, I said, you'll never believe what just happened. I, I actually killed the grouse and it was a, it was a red phase, um, red phase female was was that that bird and i mean like i said it was significant enough that i killed the grouse that i actually called someone right to right. notice a single harvest so for those of you who have the opportunity to harvest a lot of grouse um you know keep that in mind that it, it can come to a point where a single bird warrants a phone call and i actually so at that point in time they had reduced the, the limit to two birds and i put i carefully tucked this bird into my bag and um continuing along my way. So earlier in the walk, I had actually flushed uh, a single woodcock uh, in a little piece of cover along uh, along some ground where there was a spring heap, and I had killed the woodcock. So now I had a woodcock and a grouse in my bag, and I'm wa- working the edge of this field back to my truck. And the second bird, I, I can't even tell you, the second bird was in the same exact scenario as the first bird, but a <laughs> far more difficult going away shot. But the dog actually gave me a flashpoint this time. So she knew the bird was there. She was looking up in the trees and she gave me just enough notice that I was able to get a shot off as a bird winged down a dropping shot out of a cedar dropped and wong off over the field. And I, I took a shot at the bird and I just had a gut feeling that I had hit it, but I couldn't find it. There was no feathers, no blood, no nothing in the snow. And I couldn't even find where it had splashed down. And as I'm walking back and forth, searching, searching, the dog kind of wanders out into this autumn olive patch of of brush she's not you know bell i love her i love her to death my my female dog's name is bell and she's a wonderful dog but she's not really a great retriever 
she kind of disappears off into the cover and I'm not paying attention because I'm so worked up that I've actually flushed a second grouse <laughs> and, and had a shot that I then missed, you know, in my mind, I'm going, Oh my God, I missed this bird. And, um, she comes back with a grouse in her mouth. Unreal. So, uh, the last day of grouse hunting that I had on the last year of the season, I managed to pull off the impossible and, and, and find and harvest two grouse. And actually the second bird was a, a mixed phase, like a gray with some, like a gray phase with, with, um, Reddish colors tones in, it. in it. Yeah. Oh, and I just, again, you know, phone calls right away, you know, and then as if, as if that wasn't enough, I, I knew where some spring seeps were and I managed to limit that on woodcock on the way out of the woods. Um, <sighs> wow. So that's a, that's a story. That's a story that, and, and an experience that I don't think I'll ever repeat. I mean, I, there's a there's a time when you realize that you've hit your culmination. You're, there's a a time where the bird you know the birds work, the dog is on point, and everything works out perfectly. And your shooting is what it's supposed to be. And uh, I can't say I've ever had a day that was like that, and I certainly don't expect to have another one. Yeah. So. Yeah, that will that will be one that you will remember for some good reasons because of uh, the obvious surface reasons of it was just a great grouse hunt, but then also some bad reasons in that. I mean, I hope it's not, but that could be your last New Jersey rough grouse hunt ever. Yeah, it's it's tough. It's a thought to wrestle with, but I I mentioned it in the article. But you know, there's many hunters that came before me that wrestled with the same thing. I mean, New yeah. Jersey used to have wild pheasants and wild quail, and we don't anymore. I mean, there's just really no two ways about it. We don't have wild pheasants anymore. We don't have wild quail anymore. And the, the reality is the truth of the matter is that, you know, especially for the old, the generation before me, my father's generation to watch, you know, now he's had three different wild game birds essentially be removed from the, you know, removed from his ability to hunt them. So I think it's pretty significant that in one man's, you know, my father's span of being a hunter, in the state of New Jersey that so far he's watched two species go away and now a third in terms of his ability to go pursue them. Essentially for the upland hunter in the state of New Jersey, you're left with woodcock uh, in terms of wild birds. And the fact that one man could watch three of four potential game species essentially vanish from the landscape is something extremely significant. And I don't think it's, you know, and I, again, I, I, I go back to it, but I, it's a, uh, ghost of you know upland seasons to come it's not just going to be new jersey i mean we are on the fringe and there's no doubt about that that we are on the fringe but if something's not done people are going to see this start to happen in other places and i just hope that we can all kind of learn from the experiences that we've had here and hopefully make some changes before it's too late because i think in a lot of ways uh, New Jersey, I, I would, I hate that I even am saying this, but I feel like some, in some ways, New Jersey is the lost cause. I just don't, I don't know if there's enough backing and enough people who would be interested. Uh, it would take a, a, a major change in the way habitat is managed and the way things are done here uh, to actually affect a positive change in rough grouse and woodcock numbers. Right. So. I, I hold I hold out hope. I, I still am very hopeful that we can somehow figure out how to wrestle this beast and, and make something of it. But again, I, I just from the writing on the wall from the past, you know, from looking at pheasants and quail, 
Um, there is good research being done on quail in South Jersey right now, and they're trying to figure out why the numbers are declining. Uh, but it always goes back to habitat. I mean, that's that's the biggest thing is, uh, is habitat. Yeah, that's really the scariest part, man. I, I was going to make the comment that, you know, you mentioned it earlier, you're 35 years old, you're not that old, and you're seeing rough grouse, you know, the season close and the population dwindling to the point where they're not huntable. But then you mentioned your dad who's seen, he's going to see three species basically go that way. I mean, that's, man, you just, how much more of a wake-up call do you need? And And I guess we're usually talking to ourselves. We're talking to upland hunters. I mean, we get it for the most part, but it's unfortunately there are too many other folks that are not interested, don't care, or are just working against us. And, you know, we have to watch this stuff happen. I mean, it's just, it's a buzzkill. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't feel good. And I, I think that I can echo that comment that you said about just the people that aren't aware or people who just don't care. And it's a sad state of affairs that wildlife can be disappearing. I mean, not just the fact that, yes, these are game birds and, yes, there's this idea of pursuing them as a sport and as a hobby, but they're, they're also gone from the landscape for everyone who enjoyed them for every other reason that you enjoy having wildlife around. You know, you see wildlife at your bird feeders or when you drive to work in the morning. And the sad state of affairs is that I, I don't want to only see deer, bear, and turkeys. I would love to see a diverse population of wildlife when I go out. And, and ride around my hometown. And I just hope that perhaps there are some other folks out there that feel the same way. Well, and you know what? That's a great point that you bring up, Joel, because that might indeed be the silver bullet in that the, the kinds of habitat and the kinds of forests that we're talking about don't just benefit the birds that you and I love. They benefit a whole suite of species that have made their living here and evolved here. And, you know, there was a report, I'm pretty sure it was Audubon. They came out with a report this fall that talked about is like 2.9 or essentially 3 billion birds being lost over the past. I don't, I don't remember the time frame. but if anybody looks up 3 billion birds lost, they'll probably find this Audubon report. And they're talking about just bird loss due to essentially habitat loss and, changes in the environment and you know again if something's going to save the birds that you and i love and unite enough people to make a difference it might be research like that to you know show people that you know it's not just one particular species it's all wildlife that needs early successional forests or needs a diverse mix of forests to survive yeah it's i hope it starts as a wake-up call i know that are that article circulated and I, I read it and saw it and the truth is that that's the kind of PR that you need. I mean you need to un- people need to understand that it's not just because it's coming from hunters who Correct. are in essence conservationists. It's not just coming from us. It's this outcry that, you know, there's not a lot of advocates for some of these for some songbirds, you know, for golden warblers. The Audubon Society has done a great job with it, but you know, the general layperson on the street has very little care about that. And the reality is that if we can paint this picture and say, look, it, it's not just these few species that we pick as the figureheads. This is across the board. This isn't something that's limited to rough grouse because I want to go hunt rough grouse. Exactly. You know, it's a, it's a it's a picture to be painted for everything that we're looking at, and I think that's the bigger thing that we the bigger message that we need to put out there is, hey, this is not just an issue for game species. This is going to become an issue for all species. Yeah, as hunters, we're always going to be 
somewhat pigeonholed in that respect because somebody that is perhaps a non-hunter or maybe even anti-hunter, they're going to look at, you know, we're talking about again, and, and maybe it's, you know, we've almost shot ourselves in the foot by touting these specific species. You know, they, it's, it would be easy for somebody to perceive that we want more of these birds so we can shoot more of them, you know, where, when you and I know there's a, a whole lot more that goes into our thought process and why we want to see these birds thrive and flourish at the surface level to a passerby, you almost, you almost can't even blame them to, you know, for arriving at that conclusion, even though it's, there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's inherent. We are resource users. Yep. So we're out there in and around it more often than not. And I, you know, a great example from a hunt the other day, I was out, uh, and I saw a, a ruby crown kinglet for the first time in a long time. And it, it's a very small songbird, gray, mostly gray, very drab. They have a kind of a little eye line. It's got some good color on it. But just I haven't seen as many of them as I've seen in past seasons. And, I mean, I can remember as a kid seeing them all the time when I was out grass and woodcock hunting because they love, in our area, they love silky dogwood and the, the early successional habitat. And they're always, they were always in and around there. And I love them because these little songbirds were very, they were very uh, brazen. They, they were not timid at all. So you'd be pushing through some cover. And all of a sudden, there'd be this little bird kind of hanging out. And I actually noted it in my mind. Hey, that's the first time I've seen the kinglet in a long time. I wonder if that's part of this whole conversation is, hey, those guys are going too. And it's, again, not just the grouse and the woodcock. It's all these other species that utilize this habitat. So being the front end of it, being on the forefront of it, I think it also makes our voice, you know, although maybe people view us as being skewed, we're also much more in it we're we're more potent we understand it we see it firsthand sure yeah and we're we are invested you know and that that investment is built on a lot of times passion and and money and resources and we put a lot into it and we get i would say you know we often get a lot back you know we definitely get our money's worth as far as what the natural world and and hunting and and stuff gives back to us but we certainly put a lot into it as well Sure. That's a lot about New Jersey and birds and habitat. I think we'll we'll transition a little bit and talk. I want to talk dogs actually because you mentioned your English setters, and I know, I know you didn't have your English setters when we were out at Pine Ridge a couple of falls ago, but I, we talked about dogs, and I think I saw and read about a Brittany in your article in the Project Upland magazine. Talk about your evolution with bird dogs, maybe what your dad used to run and how you wound up with your English setters today. Yeah. Uh, so the first dog that my, the first dog that my dad ever ran was the Beagle, which okay. I, there's been many, many stories about the Beagles of Aston Pink, and that's a whole different podcast. But uh, <laughs> the first dog, the first dog that I remember was a black lab. Uh, my dad had a black lab and I was, I was very, very young. Actually, one of my sole memories of that dog was holding onto the leash and the dog just taking off at full full speed in the yard and getting smashed as a kid holding on to the leash. On the, yeah. So that's my one real memory of that dog. But uh, my, my dad actually, he ran setters as well. So one of the first bird dogs that I can remember was a, a dog named Roxy. Uh, she was a setter that we had a little smaller female setter. Um, and then after Roxy went to, uh, we had a dog named Jake it was a, one of our, one of our best setters, English setters that we had. And we had a Brittany along the way. Her name was Ginger. A fantastic, fantastic little bird dog. Uh, I remember she was 
so bird crazy. I mean, she was a lover, don't get me wrong, but she was so bird crazy when you were out in the fields that she would point a woodcock, you would flush it, shoot it. She would run and find it and retrieve it to you, and she would spit it out and just be back looking for the next bird. She wouldn't even wait for you to right. congratulate her or pet her. She would literally spit it from a ways away at your feet and turn back around to go find the next bird. So um, You can't teach what, that. You know, yeah, she just she was just a great a great little dog. And then after that, it was it was just all setters. And I can't say why particularly my dad favored setters, but I think that for my own uh, for my own piece of this picture, I read enough stories and I looked at enough paintings, and I like setters. They're beautiful dogs. They run through the woods in a certain way. And for the cover that we hunted in the East Coast in New Jersey, we hunted very thick, dense cover. The setters that we had were very slow-working dogs. They tend to stay very close. Uh, we always kept our dogs essentially within eyesight, if not earsight, um, so that they were very close to us. And uh, the nature of the grouse that we, where we are, even when we did have some grouse numbers, the grouse were very, very jumpy. Uh, we had almost never had a grouse hold to a point. So again, in the nature of the hunting that we did, the setters that we had actually worked very well for us. Sure. And for a lot of applications, that might not be the best kind of dog to run. But as a result, now I myself am a fan of setters. So I currently have three English setters. Uh, I have a he's gonna he's a twelve year old male doc. I've got a seven year old female Bell, and I've got their son uh, Nuge, who's uh, three three and a half years old right now. Okay. And uh, I I love my setters. I mean, I have I obviously have three of them and have run run them quite a bit. And there's just something about a setter that uh, for me anyway tickles my fancy. Yeah. Do your dogs, do they hunt in a similar fashion as the dogs that you spoke about that growing up hunting with closer working, slower working, kind of the same, same style of dog, or has that changed at all? No, I mean, for the most part, they're close working dogs. My, the older male, uh, I've been out West a few times and the older male tended to range out more. So especially when we got into some flat ground and some prairie, he was not shy of getting a hundred, 150 yards away. He would you know, stretch his legs. The female, on the other hand, never really had that kind of big running instinct. And I think the male that I have now that's their son is kind of somewhere in between, but the bird drive is there in him, which I really appreciate. So he has the, the lovability of my female and the bird drive of my male, but it's kind of a nice combination to actually have a dog who wants to hunt with you, but at the same time has that energy and that bird drive that really makes a, a fantastic bird dog. So yeah, they're, they're very much very similar to the dogs I'm used to hunting over. And I, I mean, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I had some early influencers as well. So I grew up hunting with my father and his friends and my father's hunting companions also ran English setters. And, uh, one, one of my father's companions, actually, he was a member of the Amwell club in central New Jersey. And Amwell is one of those clubs that's kind of steeped in legend in this part of the state. And, uh, you know, it's written about in some of the, some of the major books and things, but, Again, setters were part of that legend and that lore, and they were written about, and they were um, just very classic. It's the same reason that you own an old double gun that breaks all the time and doesn't go off when you pull the trigger. You know, it's, <laughs> it's part of the history and the mystique. Right. Yep. We all, though we all have our reasons for winding up with a certain breed of dog, kind of shotgun, pair of boots, upland vest. Yep. You know, it, there's there's many reasons and 
we all we all sort of develop our own little ecosystem and upland world. So that's kind of the beauty of it. And that's why we get so much enjoyment in talking to other people and learning how they arrived at their decisions and how they put their hunting upland hunting lifestyle together, you know? Of course. Another thing you mentioned in the Project Upland magazine, we talked a fair bit about hunting in New Jersey, but you have taken some trips with your father and you've done some trips to some Western states, hunted maybe the Dakotas and the Lake States. Talk a little bit about some of those experiences, maybe a favorite trip. Oh, well, if I had to pick a favorite trip, it would certainly be the, uh, the trip that my father and I took after I graduated from college. But I guess I have to kind of set the stage because my father started taking me out of school when I was in high school and we would go together and travel somewhere for a week or two weeks in the fall. And it was a very odd thing for all my teachers to understand, but uh, a note would come in from my father saying, I'm taking him out. Please give give me all of his schoolwork and we'll see you in a couple weeks. And those trips, those trips range from, um, you know, we went to Maine, we went to Michigan, went to Wisconsin and Minnesota, North and South Dakota, uh, Nebraska, Wyoming, Montana. So we kind of hit quite a few different states, focused mainly on grass and woodcock. But then when we got out west, we took, uh, you know, going back to my the trip that I would have to say was like the the trip. When I graduated college, I it took a little time off and that subsequent fall. So I had a job for the summer. In the subsequent fall, my father and I had actually been planning it for quite some time. We took a road trip. Um, we had a 24-foot camper, and we took a road trip and planned two months of bird hunting out west. And we took, uh, actually, Nelly was one of my dad's female dogs, and, and Jake, which he was a male setter, and he was the old dog at that time. And he was probably, he probably was one of the best dogs, best setters I've ever hunted over. And um, we were out there for essentially two months. Wow. And we st- we started in Montana. We hunted uh, Montana, Wyoming, and uh, Nebraska and just lived the life for two months. So uh, get up in the morning and decide we we're going to go chase birds and bring the dogs back, stake them out, eat some game food. I mean, it was that was the that was the trip. And we happened to hit it when the bird numbers were up out west. So we actually went out on a great year. And we started in the very northern part of Montana uh, with sharptails and huns and shot sage grouse, shot wild pheasants, and then went into Wyoming and all along the way, duck hunting, bird hunting. I mean, we just kind of wow. trout fish. We did, we did a little bit of everything. And uh, that was by far my, uh, you know, by far my favorite trip. That was a phenomenal time for an impressionable lad of 22 years old. You can't there's no way to trade for that experience. There's, there's nothing I, I would, I would give just about anything to do that again. It yeah, I couldn't trip. imagine that's, that sounds like that's an amazing trip. I mean, not to mention doing a whole bunch of stuff, you know, at one time, but the, the length of the trip, two months and just really actually taking some time to soak it in. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the, the best remarks were when we returned home, my mother was remarking about how thin everybody looked, including the dogs. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. You know, months on the road you get back and you know skin and bones so oh, it, was, it was great i mean that's that's just it that's the i think that's the uplander's dream is to chase the season from north to south and um i actually just had a conversation with my father about this tonight part of what makes upland hunting upland hunting is that it's different than most everything else most all upland birds are created equal so when you shoot you know when you shoot a pheasant it's a pheasant there's not 
a Boone and Crockett score. There's yeah. not a length. There's not a poundage to it. Every one of every one is a trophy, and the I think that in and of itself sets upland hunting apart. In that, at least for me anyway, and for my father, and I, I'm sure that's where it came from, is that the beauty of it and the thing that makes it special is that you can go to different landscapes and apply your knowledge and apply your skills and be successful whether you're in Maine or Michigan or Montana. It doesn't matter where you are. You can apply those same skill sets and have a great experience in a totally different backdrop with a totally different bird. That's a beautiful way to look at it, man. I, I couldn't agree more. I think I think the the lack of individual birds being trophies and the statement that, you know, all birds are trophies, I think I think that plays into upland hunting a lot, more so than than I think we even talk about it and you hear about or read about. I know it's I mean I know it's been talked about before, but I just I think it almost draws a certain kind of person into upland hunting and that may be one of the reasons why upland hunters tend to find I mean, I feel like we tend to make pretty easy friends. We you find that connection with somebody and you make friends pretty quickly and I think that's very common throughout upland hunting and i think that has a lot to do with it i think there's at least in my way of thinking there's less adversarial thought towards it and i'm i'm not trying to best you on you know the score of my deer's antlers right. you know, we're out there together to enjoy to enjoy it and watch the dogs work and have that experience so i i would 100 percent agree with that yeah well i had no idea that you had that kind of a upland excellent adventure in your history but that is that sounds like a phenomenal trip that's that is really cool experience that you can remember for quite a long time yeah i i would highly recommend that anyone that can just drop everything and you know grab a camper and go away for a couple months uh i would highly recommend that they try it joel let's talk about i want to talk about shotguns now and we it's taken us a little while but we haven't even really dove into Griffin and how in your work there and how that ties together with shotguns. And I'm trying to figure out the best way to dive into this, because if anybody listening to this thinks your voice sounds familiar, they may be recognizing it from a recently released Project Upland film titled Legacy, which was about essentially about AYA shotguns and rough grouse and woodcock hunting. And that was done at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp while you and I were there a couple of falls ago. That's where I met you. And along with that film is, you know, it's more than just a film about rough grouse and woodcock hunting. You actually got to take a trip to the AYA factory in Spain. So I want you to talk about that, but I guess let's set the stage a little bit with Griffin and how talk about what you do for Griffin and how, and actually I'm, I'm even further ahead of myself than I want to be. What is Griffin and how for those that don't know? Certainly. So, uh, you have to start with a little bit of history, I suppose. Yes, so let's for, do it. For the for the listeners that don't know Griffin and Howe, Griffin and Howe was founded in 1923 in New York City. Uh, essentially, one of the oldest gun makers and, and gunsmiths in the country. Uh, started out sporterizing uh, military rifles. So they would take Mausers and Springfields, which were essentially you know World War One bolt-action rifles, and turn them into sporter rifles for, you know, GIs coming back from the wars, uh, that they could take them hunting and use them, you know, in everyday situations. Fast forward a number of years, you know, Griffin and Howe was initially at Abercrombie and Fitch. Uh, they were, for those of you who don't know, Abercrombie and Fitch was an outfitter and a safari outfitter in New York City, um, importer of fine firearms, uh, steeped in history with, 
English gun makers and all the rest and eventually progressed out of New York City to uh, Bernersville, New Jersey, and then from Bernersville, New Jersey to our home location now in Andover, New Jersey. So we are we are now located on the grounds of Hudson Farm. So Griffin and Howe at Hudson Farm. Uh, we have kind of two sides to the organization. So Griffin and Howe is we are gunsmiths and gun makers, but we are also uh, at our new location at Hudson Farm. We are also a shooting school, shooting academy. We offer shotgun lessons, rifle lessons, archery, fly fishing. Uh, there's a, a showroom and a pro shop there. Uh, we do firearms consignments, purchase collections. I mean, essentially, it's a overarching kind of view of it. But the, the goal is to become and to ch- kind of recreate that classic idea of being an outfitter. We want folks to come to Griffin and Howe to have the experience, soup to nuts. We can give you everything you need. So if you've never pursued anything in the outdoors before, we can not only give you the apparel and the gear, we can get you lessons. And then even as much as uh, we've just started doing uh, Griffin and Howe Outdoor Adventures all the way through to um, advising you on where to go. And that's kind of that holistic picture that we're trying to paint right now is that we want to be able to give you the holistic picture of if you come into us, we're going to try and take care of you from beginning to end. And I think that's kind of a unique thing. <clears throat> and it's something that we did in the past. So Griffin Howe, at, you know, when we were ever coming to fish, that's what we did. We, we were outfitters and, and outfitters in every sense of the word. But so our core of operations right now, we're, we're gunsmiths and gun manufacturers. And we are, you know, we do consignments and firearm sales. Uh, we probably have seven to 800 firearms on the floor at any given time. And then again, a big part of what we do is um, we have NSCA instructors uh, up through level three, um, some, some very, very fine instructors in uh, Kevin Sturck and Grace Callahan, some folks that are there that are, have shot and, and are shooting currently uh, professionally. And, and it's a Mecca essentially for, for shooting, for the shooting sports. And we want to try to expand that as much as we can. So, so that's kind of the, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it sounds like a place I'd like to visit Joel. <laughs> you are, you are, you are welcome anytime uh, <laughs> you, you open arms. Come, please come visit. I'll give me an excuse to get out of the office for a little bit and go shoot for a while. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. No, that is more, I'm sure you probably told me that late one night at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, but that's, it's more, almost more like all encompassing than I recall. And certainly I'm, I'm interested in the shotgun aspect. And I often look at the Griffin and Howe website and look at your used shotgun inventory, because that's something I do in my spare time when I have a minute or two, because <laughs> I know that you work there and I know if I see anything interesting, I can give you a call. Yep. Yep. Well, we, like I said, we, uh, primarily deal in classic sporting firearms. So, uh, and we are also agents for some of the, the bigger companies, you know, over the pond. So, uh, we have just recently partnered very closely with uh, James Purdy and Sons. Okay. And uh, Royal Berkshire is their uh, sporting agency and shooting school in in England. Um, so we actually work closely with them, but we've worked with Boss and Holland and AYA, and we work with a lot of different makers over the years and have contacts and do import export on the grounds. We do you know all the basics, gun fittings and gun repairs and stock alterations. I mean. We are and try to be a, a full service, uh, full service operation. Actually, the, the shooting grounds that we have in New Jersey is 4,000 acres. So we actually 
do have quite a piece of property there. Uh, 30 stations of sporting clays, trap range, five stand. We just put in a 15 station 3D archery course. We have a section of a river that we work with Trout Unlimited to make it to like the ideal trout fishing stream. So um, we work with Ducks Unlimited on our, on our ponds and swamps. Everything's managed. I mean, this is a, when I say it's a facility, it is a, in every facet of the word uh, a facility that we try to do the whole works. Let me ask you this. Does Griffin and Howe, do they make guns or did they make guns at one time? So we have made, it's, so the name has so such a long history that when you look at guns that are marked Griffin and Howe, there's a lot of different iterations of that. So when you pick up a Griffin and Howe, it might be a Greifelt, an old shotgun of German make, or or we were importers with uh, Von Lingerke and Dietmold, you know, Frankots and Belgian guns. So there's a lot of different guns that that have come in with the Griffin and Howe name. We actually, I actually own a, a Belgian Browning over and under that is, you know, has on the barrel made exclusively for Griffin and Howe. Okay. Over the course of time, there's been a lot of times where we've put our names on guns. We have always made the sporter rifles. So the Griffin and Howe marks rifles, which are primarily Winchesters, Mausers, and Springfields. Those are guns that we basically took the action of, stripped everything off of, restocked, rebarreled, metalwork, woodwork, the whole picture put back together and made it to beautiful sporting rifles. So those rifles are the works of art that Griffin has been putting out. I think we're somewhere in the serial number range of 2,800. So over the last 100 years, there's only been about 2,800 of those produced. But uh, as far as shotguns are concerned, we've, we've worked with a number of different outmakers, um, both doing work in our shop and work outside to create a variety of different uh, shotguns sure and um it, it's so i mean we have worked with spanish makers in the past and certainly the folks that are in the know uh, that that know shotguns we have griffin how our griffin how round body guns our game guns which are our side-by-side game guns and those most recently are aya shotguns oh they um, are okay. so that's yeah so that's something that you know we've worked with them for years and, um, you know, again, like I said, if, if you do some research, you can find out who the makers are. And that's not that's certainly not a secret. Right. Um, we don't have the ability to do the castings and the, the barrel forgings and that kind of stuff in our facility uh, in, in New Jersey. So we, we have to rely on outworkers. And then, again, we do as much finished work as we possibly can to kind of give the guns our own touch. Sure. So would the round body Griffin and how game gun, would that be essentially uh, like on a side lock number two platform from AYA? More or less. Yeah. Okay. So there you're looking at uh, an AYA platform and then custom engraving and sure. upgraded wood and, you know, variety of different things that we kind of request from them. You know, we do do things with uh, stock dimensions. We request specific dimensions and, uh, different pieces of it that kind of make it our own, but yes, yeah. In, in so many words, it is it is an AYA at this point in time. Yeah, no, that's really cool. That's that's definitely not an uncommon thing for somebody to do. But I the my question was coming from when I'm perusing Guns International, looking at shotguns and stuff. It's it's not uncommon to come across a gun that is labeled or it's either labeled as Griffin Howe or you can see it says Griffin and Howe on it. So I was kind of curious how that how some of those guns came to be. And it sounds like various, various ways that would have happened. Sure. I mean, and again, there's a hundred years of history. So, right. Uh, when, when you find a gun that has Griffin and Hal on it, there's, there's going to be some history there. Actually, one of the coolest things that I've gotten to do 
since starting with Griffin and Hal, was uh, get into the archives a little bit. And we have the old archival books in our warehouse in a you know controlled facility where I can go back to the 1900s and look at the handwritten records of guns that came in to uh, VLND, VLNA, like these early importers into the States. And I can look back in the records and there's handwritten notes about the guns, their dimensions and who they went to. So that's one of the best, one of the best things about Griffin now is that we have that history and that legacy. And, and I can, like I said, I can still go and get the original books from New York city and look up when a rifle was produced, when a shotgun might've been imported and, you know, get, get people the history on these firearms, which just, it, it gives them some intrinsic value that, you know, and um, maybe a more modern firearm doesn't quite possess, doesn't have that mystique and that romance that some of these older guns have. Yeah, the line of Griffin and Howe is unbroken, if you will. And that's unique, I would say, in, in this day and age to maintain that history. And now that it's spanned long enough where now that is that adds value and it adds sort of the mystique to a particular gun or a company in this case that, you know, you guys can, you can refer back to those books, those orders. That's for people that like history, which is not an uncommon thing for people that like vintage shotguns. You know, they usually like history. Sure. Of course. What about you, Joel? Were, were you a shotgun nut before you started working there or did, did Griffin, how did Griffin and how just sort of amplify what was inside you? Yeah. I, I would say that Griffin and how was a, a magnifier sure. more than anything. So I, if you get into bird hunting, you're eventually going to work on a shotgun because invariably something breaks, something malfunctions. And being a longtime bird hunter and a longtime talking shooter, you know, I had clean guns and done that type of thing before, but I'd never really gotten into gunsmithing. And actually, again, I, the influence of my father, he retired from the state and started essentially working as a gunsmith on the side in his basement on for on his own firearms. He would you know, purchase a gun and fix it up for himself or work on different things. And that propelled me into learning more about the intricacies of firearms. I can't exactly say when it was, but somewhere along the way, I decided that I wanted to get a a side-by-side shotgun. And I don't know why I couldn't pick the exact moment, but uh, I can remember at a gun show, I I purchased a cheap side-by-side shotgun, but it was a Savage Stevens, but it was a 20 gauge and it was a side-by-side and that meant something to me. And I think that was my first step into kind of really getting into gunsmithing, shotguns, and in particular, side-by-side shotguns. And, and the, my time at Griffin and Howe has only kind of amplified that and, you know, thrown me down the rabbit hole, so to speak. Um, you know, I went from owning one side-by-side to a whole collection of them, and I certainly am not stopping anytime soon. <laughs> and you still have that Savage Stevens, don't you? I I did. I actually very recently, um, as a thank you gift to my friend in Alaska, I actually uh, sent that gun along to him. No way, a, that's cool. Thank- yeah, it was my first side by side, and um, he has a son, and I felt like it should travel the world. You know, I felt like it should should also be somebody else's first side by side, and <clears throat> my friend also has never owned a side by side, and it just felt appropriate. So. That gun is is off to grand adventures right now. Hopefully, <laughs> paying it forward, man. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's just it. I think again, you, the, the whole thing that we love, the the mystique and all that, it has to start. There has to be a spark. And at least for me, you know, being able to gift that 
firearms my friend and, and say here you know have a side by side try it out it might be tough at first there's two triggers it's going to take a while that's just fun for me because i know what he's going to go through i know how frustrated he's going to be but i love it because yeah. when he kills something with it i know that he's going to call me and let me know <laughs> yeah that's something you talked about in the project up and film legacy a little bit in sort of making the i believe you called it a philosophical shift and i related to that because i went through the same thing in that you know my first shotgun was a remington 870 pump 20 gauge like a lot of people probably listening to this you know it's not uncommon and i kind yeah. of I, I always liked guns i liked i liked guns i never you know the, the old it's almost cliche people say i consider them a tool and that's fine I always, I always really liked shotguns and had an interest in them. I just, my interest was limited and I didn't dive deep on side-by-sides or over-unders or anything like that, but I shot a pump shotgun for quite a while. And then eventually it's kind of like similar to your story. I don't know what it was inside me that sparked, but it was, Hey, I, I want a break action gun. And, and for me, that was an over-under and it was a Satori, a Browning Satori was something that I had, cause I had a Browning pump and I always liked Browning gun, so I wanted a Browning Satori, and and long story short, I've I've talked about those elements before, but I sort of made that philosophical shift where I shot a pump and then an over under, and now I really like side by side shotguns, and it's it was a progression for me, and that progression isn't necessarily going to play out the same way or look the same way for everybody else, but that is kind of how it happens, and that's what you talked about in that film, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, it's it is to be you know again to to pull my own skeletons out of the closet i my first gun was a 20 gauge 870 just the same and i still have you know several 870s that have a home in my in my gun room so i think that again i think that it's a it's a shift it's just a kind of respect for the past and it just makes it more interesting and more entertaining for me and you know i certainly am not going to be that guy that says you have to shoot a certain gun to be out in the uplands because for the first i probably 10 or more years that I shot birds, it was with a pump or an auto. So, you know, I'm the last person that's going to tell somebody what they need to shoot out there. But, um, you know, I think the bigger thing, like you you said, is everybody arrives where they're going to be for whatever reasons. And I think that the camaraderie and again, the elements that you find in the camaraderie and the chasing of those birds and, and the fact that we're all up in hunters is what binds us together. Not what necessarily what firearm we, we decide to shoot. So, yeah, well, I I definitely want to ask you a little bit. We're kind of we're getting a little bit closer to time, and and I don't want to keep you too much longer. We can always have you back on, Joel, because I know where you work, so we could, yeah. we could do that again. <laughs> but I do want to ask you, you know, as someone that's gone through this progression, and you now have this affinity for shotguns, and and you're taking you've taken it a step further. You've learned you've learned you know some tools and skills of the trade, learning how to work on them a little bit. You did have the opportunity to cross the pond, head over to Ibar and go to the AYA factory. What was that? What was that like? Talk a little bit about your experience over there. Yeah. So in the process of the, the filming and meeting you guys and talking with AYA, we, so Griffin and Howe has been in, has talked with AYA and been in business with AYA for a long time. And it just so happened that it was a prime opportunity to go visit and strengthen that connection with, with AYA. And let me tell you, the trip over there was, it was an eye opener. So 
I'm used to our facility and the way we work at Griffin and Howe. We have a almost 6,000 square foot gunsmithing facility. We have a lot of machinery. To be completely honest, the AYA uh, factory was considerably larger, much more floor space, but in the same vein, far more uh, industrial. So when we got there, it was much more like a machine shop, much more like a production kind of manufacturing facility. But the thing that kind of strikes you when you go there is that although there's machinery and big things going on, there's a lot of people there and they're doing a lot of handwork. And I think that that was one of the things that definitely hit me about it is there's still a collection of guys on benches doing the handwork to make those firearms. Um, and the skills that those gentlemen possess, gentlemen, gentlemen, women that are there, I mean, that they possess is, is phenomenal. And you watch them do their work and they are certainly, most certainly skilled craftsmen. So man flew in and crazy ride through the mountains it looks like the northwest it's very green and damp it's not like you would imagine spain would be in ibar uh, a lot of industry in the north of spain there a lot of uh, factories and things but again in this extremely steep kind of uh, rural setting and got to see the factory got to watch the guys work and you know there were things that i had never seen before i'd never seen folks joining barrels you know taking the two halves of the barrels all the way back to the block and putting them together and wiring them in and you know laying the ribs putting them through the oven soldering them together barrel drills and i mean again it was quite quite an experience to see all that they also have a lot of modern machinery there so they do have CNC machinery that deals with the actions and the cutting. So they're, again, it's a good combination of the new and the old. So they're really trying to increase production and be able to make a quality product while still having, you know, again, there's men and women there hand engraved, you know, they're, they're on engraving easels and hand engraving. You, I mean, you can look through the window and watch them engrave the shotguns. And it's, it's very hard. Again, it's hard for me to kind of put it into a few words. It would take a whole nother podcast to, to to go through the whole experience right uh alex alex and the folks at ay were extremely welcoming to us and i will always be thankful that they kind of gave us a window into what it is they do over there an amazing process for sure yeah sounded like a really cool trip and folks can get a little bit of a sneak peek from it if they watch the legacy film i'll throw a link to that in the show notes uh two more questions for you before i let you go joel one of them, I guess they're both related, but I'm curious as somebody that now has a number of a number of guns in his collection, and more importantly, somebody that gets to see, handle, and shoot a lot of different shotguns working at Griffin and Howe. Number one is do you have do you have a favorite gun in your collection right now? If you're if you're gonna go bird hunting, is there one that you pick up more than the others? Oh boy, that's a that's a dangerous question to yep. ask. So short answer is yes, but it's it's not my favorite right now because I have to do some work, some work to it to figure out what's going on. But uh, I have a, a Fox, a 20-gauge Fox that I've been shooting this season, and I, I dearly love it. Sterlingworth? Uh, some, it is. It's okay. a Fox Sterlingworth. And someone put a leather-covered recoil pad on it, so it's got added length. So for my monkey arms, it actually is long enough that I can shoot it. But uh, <laughs> I, I actually was experiencing some... Uh, intermittent primer strikes. So I was actually getting some some no fires. I was getting dented primers, but no fires. So that's kind of on the shelf right now. But uh, for sure, it's, an, it's a new-to-me gun. I This is the first season I hunted with this 20-gauge Sterlingworth. And I have to say I've been leaning on it quite heavily this year okay. and taking it, out, taking it out quite a bit. I also have, uh, have a pension for 16-gauge guns, and I have a 
16 gauge uh, JP Sour uh, Krupp Steel hammer side by side that I take out once a season and then put back on the rack. So that's also a personal favorite. But uh, again, this year that 20 gauge has been out quite a bit. The 16 gauge JP Sour is a gun that I'm rather fond of, and that's probably because a couple people I know have them, and I've I've been able to put my hands on a couple of JP Sours, and they are. For what they are, I, I would say that they're definitely undervalued. You know, oh, man. most often. You want to talk about you want to talk about a a value in the gun market right now. Right. This, is, this will be my my one tip to folks out there who are looking for guns. I know that I I know the legend and the lore of the the Fox, the LC, yep. and the Parker. If you want to get bangs for your buck right now, it's in Continental guns. Yeah. It's in your it's in your Belgian guns, your German guns, your your Guild guns. Man, you can get a firearm that has side clips, a greener cross bolt, triple lockup, ejectors, cocking indicators, the whole works. Yeah. I mean, you name it, and it's a fraction of the cost of some of these other firearms. So for any of you aspiring side-by-side folks out there, do not overlook the Sours, the Frankots, the Belgian Guild guns, the German Guild guns. I mean, there are some really good guns out there that i think a lot of folks tend to uh overlook because they're not a named side by side yeah yeah definitely that's a that's a great tip and that yeah the jp sours they do it for me there's they're they're a really really good gun and they have kind of all of the they really check all the boxes if you find the right one but my other question for you do you have do you have your eyes on anything is there anything that you're out there looking for i mean uh, you know a good a good bird hunter is kind of always looking for his or her next gun, but is there anything, it it doesn't always take a physical form. You know, sometimes it's just a, it's still a a twinkle in that person's eye, but does your next gun, uh, do you know what it looks like? Oh, well (laughs) I have, (laughs) so there's always the dream, right? There's always the dream that you're looking for that, that may come in sometimes. So if anybody out there wants to separate with a 20 gauge Parker, you know, 20 gauge Parker, for dirt cheap, you know, yeah, for dirt cheap with good dimensions, <laughs> I'm certainly interested. Um, no, I, I think, and I, again, this is going to be one of those things. I think the main thing that people need to focus on when looking at a, a shotgun is the fit. And I can't stress enough getting yeah. a getting a gun fit, getting your measurements, and um, you know, I know most folks out there know about the hip uplander, but there was a great little meme about. You know, forget the dimensions. I'll just shoot it anyway. Yeah, kind of yep. <laughs> idea. So, my thing is, please don't forget the dimensions. Uh, it's great to own old shotguns. It's great to pursue it all and, and to look at that. But I think that gun fit and gun dimensions are so important. And I think that one of the bigger things that people miss when they're looking for a gun is that it has to fit you, or or you're just never going to have the experience that you deserve out of it. You, you're better off. You know, you're better. So if I had a 20 gauge Parker that came in that was 12 and a half inches length of pull, I wouldn't buy it because I just it's not going to fit me. and I don't want to put a big chunk of wood on the end of it to make it fit me. And that's the thing that you have to be able to walk away from is to say, I'm not going to have a negative experience with a gun that doesn't work for me. I'm going to hold out for the gun that does work for me. And I think that's an important factor in knowing, hey, look, I'm going to I'm going to look for something that actually works for what I'm trying to do. Yeah, that's a great point, Joel. Uh, shout out to the Hip Uplander. I wonder if that's the first podcast reference for the Hip Uplander. I hope he's listening. 
I hope I was going to say, I, I hope, <laughs> I hope I'm not that guy that, that pulls that in, but I, I kind of had to, you know? <laughs> no, he's, uh, he's made quite a splash. It's, uh, that, or I should say he or she, cause you know, obviously the mystery behind it all, but, yeah, uh, shout unnamed. out, shout out to the hip hop lander. I definitely chuckled when they did the gun dimensions one, because that is personal to me because I went through that myself and I couldn't agree with you more, Joel, that I don't want to say I learned it the hard way. Cause I kind of, you know, I just sort of did it myself. I wound up with a 16 gauge Fox Sterling worth and I shot a little bit in, you know, it took a little while, but I realized that really I, I it was, it, it hit home this year because this year I shot a gun that is a much better fit for me based on recommendations by a gun fitter. And that proved to be true over and over and over again, actually carrying it and shooting it in the grouse woods. And when I was hunting, I shot it way better than I shoot my Fox Sterlingworth. And so, and that was something that, you know, Greg Elliott of dogs and doubles, he told me right away, you know, he, he mentioned fit, but I was, again, I was new to the side-by-side game. I was swept away a little bit by the Americana and the Fox Mm -hmm. Sterlingworth. And that doesn't lessen my, it doesn't lessen my interest in those guns at all. But Having a gun that I know fits me better and I can shoot well makes me feel a lot better than, again, trying to force a square peg into a round hole, taking a vintage American gun out in the woods and getting frustrated with it. Now, I know I know guys and girls, and I'm sure you do too, Joel, that they're, they're well aware of sort of the fit issues of a certain gun and they can kind of pick up different guns and they can adapt themselves to various guns and shoot them. Well, I'm not one of those people. I don't know that I ever will be, but as long as you know that the, the worst case scenario is somebody that doesn't really understand fit or gun dimensions. And then they take that gun out in the field and they have a bad experience with it. Yeah. Well, so the best thing I can say to people, and I have the, and I've had the opportunity to shoot quite a few guns over the, my course of time with Griffin and Howe. So I started at Griffin and Howe as the, shop coordinator, shop manager for the gunsmith shop. And I did that for about two years. And uh, over the course of that time, I was the person who test fired all the repairs that came through the shop. And in that position, shooting every gun that came through the shop gave me a really unique perspective on what gun fit actually means. And you, you, there's no better way to experience that than picking up a left-handed gun, a left-handed sporting clays gun and trying to shoot it as a right-handed guy. I mean, I, I cannot urge people more to take a few shots with your buddy's gun that has different dimensions when you're shooting to experience what it feels like to just have an idea or a concept of how important that actually is. Sure. Um, and, and again, switching from gun to gun from my experience and, and taking guns out and shooting say six completely different guns, it does make you a better shooter because just like you're saying, you pick up on the differences in the guns and you can compensate. But I think if, I think for, for most folks, you don't want to have to compensate. And I no. think that that the reality is taking the compensation out is going to make your life so much better when you get out into the woods and you have that one opportunity that you've worked for. And it's the last year that there's a grouse season in New Jersey and the last grouse you're ever going to flush gets up. You want to make sure that that gun fits. And taking any of the guesswork out is, is something that you can do ahead of time with a gun fit and with a properly fitting shotgun. Absolutely. Yeah. Taking the, you know, compensating for gun fit is one thing on the clays course, but in, in the, in the woods or the field when it's. You can't do it. Exactly. Yeah. And why, you, you know, why would you, it. why would you want to? Joel, this has been, this has been a lot of fun. I think, uh, definitely 
I'm excited to have you back on. Maybe we could dive a little bit deeper into shotgun buying and selling. That was a topic that we didn't get to to go as deep on as I wanted to, but there's no reason we couldn't have you back on. Thank you for taking the time to speak to me and the Project Upland community. Appreciate it, man. And I'll look forward to keeping in touch with you and hopefully our our paths will cross. Where where can people go to find out more about Griffin and Howe? Yeah, so uh, Griffin and Howe website. So it's griffinhowe.com. So G-R-I-F-F-I-N-H-O-W-E.com. Um, check us out online. You're certainly welcome to peruse our gun collection there. Um, we're located in Andover, New Jersey. So if anybody's ever in the New York City area, we're a close jump, about 50 minutes from New York City. So um, anyone who's interested, please look me up, look us up. You know, you're welcome on the grounds. I'll give you a tour anytime. You can come see the gunsmithing shop and the facility. I'd love to have you and, and kind of show you show you our world. It'd be, a, it'd be my pleasure. Absolutely, yeah. I encourage people to go on Griffin & Howe website, check out the used gun inventory, and if they see something they like, give you a call, Joel. Yeah, please do. Like I said, we always have uh, we always have things coming through, so it's definitely a good place to check out. Good deal, man. Well, I, I appreciate it. I wish you a very Merry Christmas as we're very close to the, the holidays here, man. Take care and we'll be in touch. All right. Yeah. Nick, thanks again for having me on. It was a, it was a pleasure. Yeah. My pleasure, Joel. Take care. All right. All right. Yeah. See you. Thank you for listening to the Project Upland podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. The podcast is also brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Dogs or Collars, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, Gumleaf USA, Gordian Sons Outfitters, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Don't forget to leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, and share the podcast post. You could be next week's winner of the Project Upland Podcast giveaway. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.